It's an impressive, can you hear me if I speak like this? Impressive gathering. And uh, it's an honor for us, Tanisha and myself, to be here uh, as part of, uh, to be a part of your 30 years of uh, celebration of, of this refuge, this sanctuary, which is a relatively safe place in a confused world uh, where there's a possibility of remembering that which has been dismembered, disconnected. Uh, so it's uh, very nice for us to be able to be here this evening and share some reflections on the Dharma. These uh, practices and teachings uh, that can lead us back home uh, to communion with our true nature. <clears throat> Engaged uh, Buddhism in a world on fire. I think there doesn't need to be too much convincing uh, of, of people that we're... Uh, individually and collectively facing some extraordinary challenges uh, with so much distress, instability, conflict, intense uh, conflict on uh, so many different levels. Psychologically, the, the amount of distress, burnout, confusion, feelings that have uh, gone wild internally, a lot of discord and difficulty in our, our community, politics, the world, not to mention the, the distress that our um, field of being, the ecological field, is, is under with manifestation of all sorts of intense events. It could be called climate change. How to, how to reflect on this, engage this, uh, respond to the circumstance uh, we, we live in. Uh, I spent uh, 15 years as a Buddhist monk, uh, ordained with Ajahn Chah in the um, forest tradition of Northeast Thailand. And I think I discovered that uh, through that process that I'm a, perhaps a natural hermit. I very confused when I went. And had been striving to, to arrive at a place of uh, happiness, which is in terms of the way I was grown, growing up, I assumed that was through success. So just intensely striving to be the best at academics and the best at wrestling. 
I know you think wrestling. <laughs> Use your imagination. <laughs> Sitting here is the five-time Mid-South champion. And I, I, I won the National Invitational uh, Championship when I was 17. Uh, uh, from Tennessee up uh, to, to Pennsylvania and I was wanting to, to arrive and then you're done. You're, you're happy and you know working hard is, is all very very good. But the time I, by the time I, I arrived at uh, Oxford I had unexpectedly uh, Princeton encouraged me. They said you've got a good uh, grade so you should apply for the Rhodes Scholarship. So I I applied, and you've got to have a lot of luck in these things, too. But I ended up getting a Rhodes Scholarship. And my parents were so thrilled and happy, and I was at, ended up at Oxford. And I was uh, 24, but felt ancient, exhausted, of always trying to get there. And uh, assuming that Things were really real. If, you, if you, the picture was taken, if the award was marked, if, if people recognized it, and, and there was this intuition that I had overlooked, this, this important territory inside. So I used to spend time in the old churches when nobody was in there. And I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know how to meditate, but I would just listen. And something reverberated in these places of worship, places where there was at least a sense there's something important in this life. I didn't like going when stuff was happening because growing up in the Bible Belt, I had heard enough sermons. So now I'm giving one. I'd heard enough, but I, 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 I sensed that there was some, a possibility, some possibility. And we all have that sort of faith that we wouldn't come. We wouldn't come to an event like this if we didn't have some trust, some faith, that there's such a thing as waking up or... If we had the deep conviction that, sorry, buddy, you're eternally trapped in your worries, your doubts, your pettiness, my envy, my jealousy, my... If, if, if we have that kind of idea, you don't go out to meditation places. So we might not realize there is a, what the Buddha called saddha, there is a, a, a trust, a, a faith. And I, th that somehow woke up in me. I'm not sure why. Even just the word enlightenment stirred something. And in my life, one thing I'm grateful for, I always said, from whether it was my wrestling coach, my first uh, guru, big towering, strong, terrifying guy, actually. Major Worsham, who had a big heart. He would say, Whatsoever thy soweth, you knuckleheads. 
that shall ye also reap. Working hard. You know, the karma, just working hard. And but he also had, he wanted us to work hard and strive to win. But he also did unexpected things too. I remember once when I beat someone in a close match right before the Mid-South Tournament. I beat this guy two to one or some very close match. And he would say, all right, show them everything you did. He would have our team give a clinic to the other team and show them every move that we made. And I, I said, Major Worsham, we're going to have to wrestle these guys in the tournament in two weeks' time. And he said, if they get better, you have to get better. My first Mahayana contact, someone with a, 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 a big heart. It's only in retrospect I can really go back and see that, but he was stretching us. But anyway, I kept trying to get there and your hand only stays up in victory so long and then, oh, but I was a slow learner. I kept thinking, well, no, no, the next one and I'll get there. Listening into the silence, and I realized, well, I've benefited so much from teachers, coaches. I need someone that can help me with this inner territory. And I heard about a great master in Thailand, Ajahn Chah. And um, he taught us to simplify the first level of engagement was to, rather trying to figure it all out, engage on this body, one step at a time, one breath at a time, and to learn to bhavana, the word the Buddha used, to bring into development, to cultivate this heart. And he taught something that the the Buddha emphasized a lot. After he was, uh, 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 after the Buddha's enlightenment, when he woke up, he realized it wasn't that he, he attained something and got there. He saw that actually was the the in the engine of samsara the idea that you're going to get there is never ending that that trying to hold on to that circumstance of success or that feeling tone that valence of being pleased what's called pleasure or that wonderful moment when you're appreciated that lovely moment that trying to hold on to that was futile because of the nature of things. The nature of things, though, is, is obscured, can be obscured by language, the language that concretizes, objectifies, makes so much more solid than what, how things actually are. Language talks about, you know, things. Success, my success, my happiness.
And that by this training of attention to be with how things are, that little by little, that learning to be with cultivating the art of being realistic with the reality, then we start to touch into the actual nature of conditions, like this Dharma talk right now. Kitty Sorrow uh, at the CI Cambridge Insight Meditation CIMC touching into the actuality of the talk is full of holes touching and dissolving and when consciousness has been conditioned to only make real objects Overlooking the matrix, the context, the ground in which the manifestation of, of the, the sounds, the sights, the sensations of our body, our inner dialogue responding to these moments. When this gathered mind chooses to look into what can be called vipassana or yonisomanasikara, what the Buddha called Yonisomanisikara. Placing the mind in the womb of awareness. Yoni, womb. So it's translated often as wise reflection. But the wise reflection not only notices that sounds come and go, the sensations that we're experiencing are shifting. The thoughts are swelling up, subsiding, but also honoring, giving attention to the womb, the space, the silence within which, the awareness that remains, which is so easily overlooked. So when, when the Buddha realized it is the nature of not only sound and sights, smells and tastes and sensations and perceptions to become otherwise in every instant than this idea that we're going to find a home where we're really going to capture some certainty. It becomes, wow, that's crazy. That disenchantment it's not something that, oh, you better take some medicine. It, it's considered a, an important maturing, that world weariness. The, the recognition that when we're wanting the, wouldn't it be nice if the moon was always full? I mean, but it's so, that's the way it should be. It's so beautiful. I mean, the new moon. You can't see it. That's, that's the child's. Full moon, waxing, waning. The in-breath, the out-breath. No, 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 no. The in-breath is inspiring, it's got energy, power. But we know, I mean, we should just breathe in. (laughs) Breathing out. And, and recognizing that, 
that, that, as Ajahn Chah would say, looking for certainty in that which is uncertain, we're bound to suffer. So in, in Patinisaga, what the Buddha called giving back, relinquishing what wasn't really ours, what our language led us to believe is my body, my health, my success, my suffering... In, in relinquishing, letting be, letting go, one notices what the Buddha called the pabhasarajitta, the radiant heart. Now you might think, my, my enlightenment. But he saw that too, my enlightenment. My radiant heart. He saw that all conditions arise and dissolve back into this, what the Buddha recognizes the amatadatu, that dimension of our experience, which doesn't come and go, which is deathless, undying, unborn. So, not that he attained something, he recognized what the Buddha called sanditiko, a dharma, a peace, which is always here and now. So, in the monastic life, when I got a feeling for letting go and all oh, the peace, oh, peace that's always here, what, what the, the Buddha said, you know, sadadipaya sabedama, panyitara sabedama, amatya. Vimutti sarasabhetama, amatogada sabhetama, nibbana pariyosana sabhetama. That mindfulness, when we're composed, present, it rules all things. Wisdom will overcome every condition. Deliverance is the essence of each condition, whatever the circumstance. Feeling good, not feeling good. Harmony, discord. I understand, God, no, I don't quite understand that the essence, vimutti sara sabedama. Vimutti means freedom. Sara is the core, sabedama, of every condition. That even when there's craziness, that the essence of that is unmoved, just as the first disciple of the Buddha that had a breakthrough when he saw light coming through a window crack and the dust dancing. It's just a simile, an analogy, but he saw the dust dancing, but the space was unmoved, untroubled. It is the nature of dust that, I don't know, maybe dust shouldn't dance. That's what we're trying to do when we're wanting pleasure to last and we want uh, confidence and not doubts and we want to have praise but not blame. It's like wanting the in-breath without the out-breath. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, it's like asking a duck why it's not a chicken. Quack, quack, quack. I mean, it's all right, but you, know, you, could, you could really do something. You could wake people up. Come on, be on, be, try it. Cock will do. 
you can do it. He would say, it's like, you know, it's the nature of conditions to move. So in this moment, if we notice the nature of conditions to move, even if there's, well, I'm not really sure, just like the dust dancing, but if one yoniso manasikara recognizes the conditions in the womb of awareness, the spirit, like the space that's untroubled by the dust, the heart is space-like, this ground of being. So as we start to taste that by letting go, we, we can touch all of us. It's all here and now. And the Buddha said, not only is it here now, it's timeless. It's not just when Jupiter's at the mid-heaven. It's not just when you've been deserving. It's not just when you've done your 108 bows, you haven't done 100 enough. Sorry, door's closed. But that this Dhamma is a kaliko and ehi pasiko. Ehi, it means inviting us. Ehi pasiko means come see. So as I, I started, oh, touch that. Then there's a tendency to assume the suffering's all this stuff that's out there. I just want to go touching peace. That's where the hermit, being like a hermit tendency, showed themselves. Oh, God, that, that's, it's hell out there. Oh. <laughs> peace. Just dust, dust dancing. What helped me wake up is once my, my, my Western abbot, Ajahn Sumedho, was, was telling Ajahn Chah, I do not, thank goodness I'm not going to have to be a teenager again. I, I'm not coming back. I don't want to, I'm not going through that again. And Ajahn Chah went, nah. What about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? That when really one starts to look at the implications of Amato Gadasa Bedama, that all conditions, all manifestation merges, just as waves that have, you could see big waves, little waves. Frightful waves, gentle waves, they merge in the depth of the ocean. They're not two, they just look separate. When consciousness is turned out, we just see those we know, those we don't know, old, young, this, that, those we like, we don't like. But where do all things merge in this ground of awareness? And in that sense, we're, we're brothers and sisters in birth and death. We, we're one family. And coming to, to South Africa, we, 20 years there, you know, from being in a monastery all these years, where, you know, a violent act is if someone even looks at you a little strong, it's a bit heavy. When we arrived, you know, 18 people a day were being killed in KwaZulu-Natal. 
or where we arrived. Once when we went home to, to, to visit my parents and then we, we phoned the center and KZN, uh, how's it going? Oh, uh, <clears throat> your car got shot by an AK-47. It blew out the tires and made a hole in it, but nobody got hurt. When we ended up on the land that's become our hermitage 20 years ago, and there was a, a Zulu family there that told us they were refugees from violence. I couldn't speak Zulu. They could barely speak any English. So we got a, a neighbor said, don't worry, I'll take care of this. I'll translate for you. And, but I did know their names, and I knew the, the uh, Zulu woman there's name was Angel. I said, Angel and the son Codessa, this is Dave, this next door uh, manager of a property. So I said, uh, Angel, Codessa, this is Dave. He took me aside and said, Harry, whatever you do, you don't have these people call you by name. They must call you Little Chief. So he came and went, all this really heavy energy. And then I thought, wow, what have we walked into. I mean, we had the extraordinary, we arrived just after this awesome election of President Mandela, who, who amazingly had come out of uh, prison realizing that if you harbor resentment in your heart, it's like drinking poison, hoping it will kill your enemy. He set an incredible example, but there was still so much trauma, so much damage. So not, we didn't get a translation anymore from uh, down the road. So we just tried to do the, the best we can to keep coming to the moment and, and responding as best we can. And to remember we're our brothers and sisters. Then other neighbors came and said, um, Harry, these people, talking about the Zulu, they, they, they don't know how to use water properly. You should cut off their water, the ones that were living out on their uh, property. And I found out that they, and they're lazy. And the woman was working across the road for seven rand a day. That was like, Sixty cents a day, seventy cents a day. So our challenge in a field that was very split was to to keep just trying to not just go to the realm of peace, but also to try to remember that true emptiness isn't empty. If you want emptiness to be empty, that's called aversion. And wonderful existence doesn't exist. If you want something to exist, like 
success because it changes, it leads to birth and death if you grasp at it. But when one lets go without aversion and embraces without attachment, the awakened heart can respond and be fluid. One phrase for this life it is things are magical, wonderful existence, or true emptiness. Now one, one gets it wrong. Wisdom, said the great sage Nisargadatta, says I'm nothing. That's what we learned a lot in the monastery. Focus the mind, see the changing nature. Whatever you think you are, it's changing. So you let it go. Wisdom says I'm not the thing and when we let go we taste peace. But if we want that peace to not be disturbed, we don't, don't disturb my Nibbana. Compassion says, I'm everything between these two banks. The life of an awakened one flows. Our first taste of peace is a letting go for most of us. But if we then just want to hang on and don't want to have stuff disturb us, that's not true emptiness. That's an emptiness that we want to be empty. It's, just, it's like thinking if the dust is dancing in the space, it shouldn't be dancing. Wisdom says, I am nothing, not a thing. Compassion says, I'm everything between these two banks. So practicing. Practicing not only letting go, but embracing opening. Opening to circumstances. Opening when the young Zulu lad that was working across the road disappeared for some time. He'd been there seven years. I finally saw him. He could barely walk. You all right? If you're, have you been to the doctor? I don't know how to get to. What about your employer? No. I took him to the doctor, and then we got an appointment for the hospital. But to get to the hospital, I talked to the employers. They said oh, he can take a taxi. A taxi. You have to get an hour to one hospital, then wait overnight in outside in the wintertime when it gets down to freezing till three in the morning, then to go to the hospital, navigate a hospital. These government hospitals are challenging. Then come back. This is when you're really sick and can barely move. And then wait overnight and then get another taxi back home. It would take like days And I said would you, to the employer, what, how would you like to do that? But I practice not just shouting. I just think it doesn't matter what somebody else does. This is, this is part of just trying to think, what would I want someone to help me? So I took this young man on several occasions just, just to this hospital as we hundreds lines of people in all sorts of states of suffering and just trying to breathe in and out and practice remembering that even with the suffering there was a stillness, a peace, a perfection but trying to allow my attention, my practice to include. After hours finally getting to 
to, to see a Cuban doctor, and I realized I'd been holding on to a kind of view from my upbringing Cuban doctor. This was a talk about a bodhisattva. This doctor wasn't getting rich, seeing people. And we finally found out the basically the employers thought the guy had AIDS and he was just going to be chucked out like so many other thousands. But they found out that he had something that could really be treated, rheumatic fever, that just needed the right medicine so that the inflammation went out. Just one e- example of, of trying to use the letting go but keep widening our practice to remember we are brothers and sisters. We're a family that includes the animals, that includes the plants, that includes Mother Earth, that all is arising and ceasing in this womb of of awareness. So I encourage us, uh, before I turn it over to Tanisara, to remember the vision of the Awakened One, that he had a vision of peace, but he had a vision of that which blesses all beings because we all merge. He said, just as a mother with her life would protect her only child, so too should we practice widening and embracing all beings. So I'm encouraging us in our practice, yes, by all means, touch into peace but to remember that this practice leads to a unification, a place where we realize all this separateness is a way of talking, but actually it's all part of one undivided fabric. So thank you for your attention, and now I'll be uh, turning it over to Tanisara. Also very happy uh, to be here this evening and to uh, meet uh, you all uh, through this uh, shared practice of meditation and the Dharma and to reflect on this uh, point of um, where we are now um, collectively, globally, um, as a as a uh, as a human family and uh, the enormous crises that we face, in particular through the lifestyles that we live collectively and through the use of uh, the the fossil fuels and the way of uh, living that have generated a biosphere that's becoming increasingly carbonated and filled with nitrous oxide and methane is becoming harder um, to um, guarantee a sustainable environment due to the warming that that has um, created and then as a byproduct these very extreme weather events that we have now not just happening over there somewhere in another part of the world that we don't mind so much about but are we're experiencing here 
say, in the northeast of the U.S. with the unprecedented almost winter storms, and then in California also with unprecedented drought, and then in Europe with unprecedented floods and um, typhoons, and a few years ago in the south when we were in um, Chattanooga, massive um, tornadoes coming through. I remember sitting there uh, with my father-in-law who just passed away, Kitty Sara's father, he's 98, passed away a few weeks ago, and then we were in the house together. I'd never experienced a hurricanes before. That was a new weather pattern for me. And um, so I didn't really know what to expect other than it, was, it, it got increasingly wild. And I remember him thinking, this sort of weather doesn't really happen here. So he sat through the whole thing reading the newspaper. And I said, oh, but shouldn't we be thinking of strategies? I was looking at places to hide because actually around us, we found out um, the next day over 80 people were killed um, through that um, experience and many more, over 300 as it swept a pathway through the south. But in his lifetime, he actually hadn't really experienced that ferocity of storm. They had, uh, they had, had those kinds of storms, but nothing at that level. And this is becoming an increasing experience, um, which is challenging us at, at so many levels. Um, and, you know, similarly to Kinesara talking about South Africa and our time there and our experience there, similarly, when challenged with such an overwhelming um, crisis as we were in KwaZulu-Natal, a few years after we arrived, we arrived in 1994 and there was the great euphoria of the political liberation. And there was still, as he said, an enormous also corresponding release of violence and a sort of low-grade war as things were shifting and moving politically. Um, but uh, there was a sense of great um, joy and happiness and fear. There was a lot of very powerful um, energies, and then within the midst of that mix, the AIDS pandemic hit, and we found ourselves in the epicenter of it. And it was probably that more than anything that turned us to explore how do we bring these depth practices of presence and mindfulness and awareness in response to a, a, a sort of a, a crisis of enormous proportions and so it was very understandable when at some level the whole country, not at every level, but at government level actually, decided to go into denial um, as, as a way of responding. Just if we don't say the word, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> that sounds familiar right now. <laughs> and so that went on for 10 years and was a very a deeply um, distressing and challenging period to, to live through. And challenging also to understand what does this say about our Buddhist practice? How do we bring that um, to bear upon a situation um, and to explore not only maintaining one's own well-being and perspective, but also how to more effectively respond? That wasn't really the curriculum that we thought, or I thought, that I would start out with when I began this practice. I had some sort of naive idea that, uh, that I would join a monastery. I lived also trained in the school of Ajahn Chah. And I would become a nun and would sort of somehow mysteriously float off on a pink Nibbanic cloud. <laughs> <laughs> 
just very gently, very lovingly, sort of never, never to be seen again, you know? <laughs> or more, more truthfully, never to see anyone again. <laughs> but I had a very rude awakening because the style of Ajahn Chah's teaching was to confront one with all the things one wished to avoid, particularly the experience of suffering and dukkha. You know, this tremendously um, profound experience that is also the doorway of awakening. And we do everything that we can to distract ourselves and remove ourselves from this um, ever-present experience of of the agitation of dukkha. Or are the dukkha, in this regard, that Ajahn Chah would point um, one to was the dukkha that is generated from the ignorance of the mind. That, that there's a, an enormous amount of dukkha that, that arises because of our reactivity and our misunderstanding of the nature of reality. We continually assume ourselves and this body and the world around us should be other than what it is. And through that, the assumptions we make, we experience and generate an, an enormous amount of unnecessary um, suffering and agitation and seeking and aversion. So, so to actually begin to, in the, in the Buddha's teaching, he taught, the, 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 he taught a way of actually overcoming dukkha, this level of dukkha. It doesn't mean to say we won't feel pains or we won't experience sickness or aging or conflict, but the unnecessary dukkha that we generate through the mind's reactivity, a lack of awakening or not understanding, the mind not understanding its fundamental nature, this profound ground of awareness and presence, not knowing that there's this constant movement, so avicca pachya sankara, this first link of what's called the co-arising links that give rise to this experience of dukkha. There's this constant avijja from the ignorance, not seeing clearly the nature of things, the uncertainty, the changeability, not understanding primary ground of awareness. There's this avijja, this movement to identify pachya sankhara, to identify with the, the, the experience of phenomena that we have through the senses, moments of seeing, thinking, feeling, memory, perception, and so on. Uh, sensory consciousness, there is this movement around that flow of actual phenomena through which then there is a shaping, a patterning that starts to emerge that then solidifies and becomes the sense of self, the sense of me. And that is appropriate to some degree, the sense of me, but it's ultimately a false boundary. The sense of me in the world becomes a very powerful boundary. There's me here and then there's everything else out there. And that's uh, for the sense of self, when we operate from that place, it's a very fragile premise from which to to operate from, from which to, to find our refuge within. Both because the sense of me is, is subjected to this, is also part of a changing dynamic. And as you have noticed, we can't actually control the me <laughs> and, and how it feels and the moods and the... And, and also within the sense of self is often deeply connected with, this, with the feeling tones of, of anxiety or vulnerability or desire um, or seeking 
and fragility. These are feeling tones that are coupled with that, those structures of the self. And then that within relationship, trying to find some sense of solidity and ground uh, within the, the, the world and its increasing complexity and fast changing nature generates um, this stress. So the Buddha pointed us to really explore, to really inquire, is there a true boundary here? Is there a true, uh, in reality, is there really an inside and an outside? This is a very important question to explore because we make the assumption that there is and upon that we generate an enormous amount of, of uh, seeking and greed and profiteering and plundering and it's sort of endless. If we could just consume enough and it would fill this endless inner void that we feel. And yet, you know, we have gotten to the place where we can't really realistically consume too much more, or if we do, we would need six planets to sustain the, the, the level of human civilization that we now have. So it's a very profound moment that we're actually in right now, collectively, as a civilization. In the same way, at the, the moment that the Buddha um, moved towards awakening, towards a radically new path, that was initiated through a very strong confrontation with the, all the pathways he had gone along before, the seeing that they, they didn't actually ultimately work, that he had come to the end of all the paths he had taken. It's a very, very powerful moment to live, whether it's internally, in our inner way, in our, in our psychological spheres, when we come to the end of a pathway we have known it doesn't work anymore or whether it's in our work life, or whether it's in um, the different endeavors we undertake, or different periods of our life, or collectively as a global consciousness, human consciousness, to recognize, and it's, uh, as we awaken more into that, the pathways that we are taking are actually leading us as they did the Buddha before he found his new way are taking us to the possibility, the grave possibility of, of collapse, of death, even of extinction. And the carbon, carbon budget that we have before we start sending the temperatures of, uh, the, uh, within our biosphere and on the earth and all the related problems that that generates is probably about 16 or so more years before the temperatures go beyond 2 degrees Celsius. And even at 2 degrees, it's still very dangerous. If you go up higher than that, then, you know, then it's just, it's just the tip, these tipping points start to happen. New York gets flooded. California, Southern Europe turn to desert. The coral reefs die. And beyond that, it's just unthinkable. But we have to think about it. So it's a very, very potent and powerful moment. And it's very understandable that we would like to, as, we, as happened in South Africa, to just go into denial, to just not want to look at this, to just say it's, it's too difficult. Or if we do, to feel all sorts of reactions as we open, as one does, to dukkha. You know, it's very challenging. It's a very demanding practice. And it's difficult to do if we haven't got some inner steadiness, if we haven't got some uh, mindfulness, if we haven't got some ground, and ultimately, too, if we haven't got some community, 
and some collective support. So in many ways, you know, the question is, what can Buddhism bring to this moment? What can this practice of Dharma bring to this moment, this practice that many of us have been doing, some of you perhaps newer, but been doing for decades <laughs> on our personal enlightenment trek, um, which has felt mostly quite personal. So we come together to support each other in that process, and it's very wonderful. But it's not necessarily anymore just about us personally, or even about transforming our own uh, consciousness. It's increasingly about us collectively and systemically. So what can be brought from all of these practices and teachings to meet this moment? And what can we, as in the same way as we were challenged, to think about how can we move out from our comfort zone, our monastery, behind our walls, which I, you know, in some ways had an ideal that I would stay behind forever, certainly didn't want to go to KwaZulu-Natal and be in the middle of a pandemic. That wasn't on my list of things to tick off. <laughs> and or profound racism and post-apartheid madness and trauma. That wasn't on my you know, sort of enlightenment curriculum. But I'm very grateful for that experience because it sort of was, it's been profoundly confronting and also to look, you know, demanding one to look more and more deeply into these systemic levels of dukkha, not just personal ones, and how it's so interconnected with all sorts of causes that my own ancestry is a part of. So it's not comfortable, but necessary. And then how all, all of those causes relate to not only an apartheid that's racially uh, motivated, but also an apartheid that we carry through this separative consciousness that separates out against the heart at the most profound level, this deepest, intuitive, empathetic heart that doesn't feel separate, that's actually is resonant with the reality of a seamless totality interconnected world or an apartheid that we carry against this earth and nature where we have lost connection at such a deep level that we are no longer reading the signs properly. How can we reclaim ourselves? This journey, all of these journeys are connected. I think we can, we have a, you know, besides the challenge of meeting Dukkha, the Buddha did also teach a way out and a path to develop. And so there's a, there's a very hopeful template that there is, you know, the, 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 as, as much Dukkha is presented to us, say, for example, Mr. Mandela, as Kitty Sara mentioned, as a great hero of South Africa, that was someone presented with a tr tremendous deprivation and incarcerated for 27 years and very difficult and must have been very um, angry and um, enraged and perhaps even felt vengeful, removed from his family and denigrated in all manner of ways. And yet he used all of that to forge a new pathway for a whole country through an incredible consciousness that was able to rise above and not poison, be poisoned, but to come to the message of love, forgiveness, moving forward together. Now, there are 
some complications in that, which sort of are playing out now, but still there's a, this demonstration of a very radically different way is possible. It's possible for us as human beings. And in the same way the Buddha demonstrated that through his, his pointing to the place where we really find true peace, this realization of the, the deathless Dharma, but also living from that, living from a less separative consciousness, living from compassion, living from skill, living in response to those that would generate violence and war and going out. The Buddha just didn't teach a one-fold path, just sit. He actually went out and tried to talk people down from acts of violence, tried to stop wars, tried to um, minister to the sick and protect animals from brutality. He went in and challenged the whole uh, systemic level of... um, of, uh, of the caste system by ordaining people and through that ordination process taking out of the, you know, the, the special place of uh, the priestly caste and, and conferring that to everyone equally including slaves and women. There's a radically shifted the very basis of a, of a whole culture through acts of, of, um, of seeking, demonstrating that, that actually all beings are of the same substance. I think if we look to the Buddha's example, we can see and take confidence and courage. And we look to, in spite of like whenever there is the most extreme moments of dukkha, when we come to that place of we don't know how to go forward in that chasm of how to move into which can fall all sorts of fears and worries and denials, there's also the possibility of some humility. And as Kitty Sara is talking about this letting go, this giving back, this recognition of this tremendously energized, brilliant mind of ours, but it's fueled by a dualism and in a way doesn't have all the answers. That there has to be some giving back, simplification, reorientation into a ground of being that's very human, that listens, that's willing to hear a different way, a different message, a different way of being. And that message, that way of being is emerging, whether it's through a revolution of energy, whether it's through a whole different way that we understand how our food is Uh, comes to us, or how we can live together, or how we can evolve out of our tribalisms. I don't know um, what the outcome, none of us know what the outcome will be for us at this particular juncture of our evolutionary, long, long, long evolutionary journey. That is perhaps beyond what any of us uh, can know and certainly control. But what I like to think is that the Buddha, even when there was a war where his own people were imperiled, the Sakyans, and um, he knew, he knew that it was very possible that they would be wiped out, and as it turned out they were. Even though that unfolded in his lifetime, that he actually went and he stood 
at the gate of the um, town and tried to stop the war happening. He did everything he could. And the point is that even if one can't stop things, you know, the, the message is that we should try. It's not like, oh, well, it's all impermanent. Let's just sit here as the world burns up. You know, it's not going to be too comfortable for, for a start. But, you know, we have this brilliance, we have this potential, we have wisdom, we have capacity, we have skill, we have discernment, we have incredible technologies, we have human heart. And collectively, beyond even our Buddhist communities, one of the things I was, I was involved with um, last September was the People's Climate March in um, New York. There's 400 million, uh, 400,000, I wish it was 400 million. <laughs> that would be good. 400,000 uh, peoples and then many, many more around the planet coming together to just stand up at that moment and saying there has to be another way. We have to have another way. Um, and what was so, so lovely to see is within the faith block, there are different blocks representing students, representing different kinds of um, peoples from different walks of life. In the faith block, there are 15,000 of us, and many, many Buddhists from many, many schools, and this great sense of a unified force coming together with this great uh, energy of the spirit, however we define that and understand that. And it's, it's really important that that faith block was there because any change that happens at any given time within society, whether it comes through civil rights or anti-apartheid or Gandhi Satyagraha or the um, solidarity movement in Poland, that they, their optimum success happens when there's this great adamantine, unbreakable spirit of faith based in true insight. So we have many examples that have gone before, many hopeful signs of new ways appearing, and many a possibility for us collectively together as a Buddhist community to consciously think about and consider the times we're in and how we can optimally use our resources, our skills, our intelligence, our capacities to um, support an awakening that's not just our own but is possible for us more collectively now at this time, at this juncture. Thank you for your um, attention and presence. <coughs> so please, we do have some time. If you would like to comment or reflect or ask anything, please feel very, very welcome.
How you doing? Uh, in the Sangha, we are mostly people who are classified as white, although there are people of other races. Recently, some members have raised issues about how people could improve relations between members of different races of this community. Would you have any suggestions or insight based on your experiences? Uh, yeah, no, thank you for that question. I'm very aware that this is very up here in the insight communities, Buddhist community. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.